Alternative Dispute Resolutions, ADRs. They can help resolve workplace disputes much more quickly and cheaply than going to court. The Equal Employment Opportunity Commission encourages agencies to use their ADR programs whenever possible, but many agencies have challenges with employees' perceptions of the alternative dispute resolution. Here with the latest thinking, Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. And Drew, if you would, just begin with a quick review of what an alternative dispute resolution is what it looks like. Thanks, Tom. ADRs generally let these two parties who may be involved in a workplace dispute resolve that dispute without the need for litigation. So without, like you said, the need to go to court. So these can include things like negotiation, mediation, and arbitration. Those are the different kind of methods that can be used in ADRs. And EEOC says there are a lot of benefits to this process because, you know, as you said, it can make things a little bit more quickly to resolve and you don't have to go through the costs of going to court for something. It also often results in pretty good compromise for both parties and is just an easier way to kind of get through some of these issues. That's right. And there's that other way, which is the offer of a resolution, but that's a separate type of ADR. EEOC has been trying to get agencies to use that authority that they've had since, I think, 1999. But the question is, do agencies want to give what they think a court might give And then, you know, how do they ever know who is right, I guess, is their reluctance. I don't know. All right. So the EEOC did a survey of agencies' ADR programs. These live in the agencies. What did they find out? Right. Each agency will have its own ADR program. And of this or in this survey, EEOC looked at 24 different agencies. So it's not necessarily representative of the entire government, but it does give a pretty good picture of how some agencies' ADR programs operate. They looked at things, for example, how often do agencies actually take advantage of or use their ADR program, how employees are perceiving the agency program, and how agencies are conducting or managing that process for getting those disputes resolved. So some of the findings were pretty interesting from this latest EEOC report. Only about two-thirds of the agencies in the survey had complete information available on their websites for their ADR policy. EEO says that's an important thing to do because without posting it on the website, that can become a challenge for employees to learn about the process, understand what it is, and ultimately use it if it comes to that. There's also some issues for training managers and supervisors in the ADR program for several agencies. So for example, in the report and in the survey, only about 30% of agencies were providing annual ADR training to their agency leaders and the rest, 70%, were not doing that. So there's some issues with just making sure that agencies, supervisors, and leaders understand the process and then can take effect. There also was a challenge with agencies actually offering ADR as an option to employees. They only did this in about 70% of cases, and it really depends on the agency. Some agencies said, you know, they don't necessarily have a straightforward policy for whether or not they're going to offer ADR as an option, and it's just a case-by-case basis. But then when you look also at the 70% where it was offered as an option, only about one third of uh, the parties who were involved in that actually chose to participate. Interesting results because we are talking about EEO issues, that is to say cases of discrimination. It's not every prohibited personnel practice that would come before an EEO type of dispute. And I think these can be super sensitive and we have a super sensitive era that we're living in. 
with respect to EEO types of related issues. And maybe that's part of the reluctance to trust people. The agency that you have a dispute with is going to give you a good result from an ADR. And that gets to the issue of employees who don't say see the ADR process as necessarily legitimate. And so that's a big struggle for agencies to overcome to get people to even want to do it in the first place. That is definitely a challenge, not necessarily for every agency, but, you know, it, Tom, it does make sense that for federal employees to who may be want to participate in this process or are interested in it, they should trust that it is working correctly. And EEOC said that agencies generally in the survey that they conducted were not convinced of the program's effectiveness. So agencies found that a lot of employees didn't really trust the agency to be a fair and neutral party throughout the entire process. And that, of course, can lead to, as I said, limited participation for federal employees who are actually choosing to to use ADR. And there is some legitimacy to that as well. In the report, the EEOC found that about 19% of agencies let the manager who was accused in a dispute in a, or in a complaint be the settlement authority on that complaint, which obviously leads to some issues of the fairness of the process. But on the other hand, on the from the agency's perspective, there also is an issue of resources here. So maybe for some smaller agencies, it can be difficult to have supervisors who are willing to participate in the ADR process and understand it well enough to be that settlement authority. I guess the other question is, did anything positive come out of this ADR survey? There were a couple positives here as well. One was that larger agencies, interestingly, were more often able to offer ADR options to employees compared with smaller mid-sized agencies. That could be just having to deal with the resources that are available to you know larger agencies. It might be a little bit easier for them. But EEOC said that basically more research would be needed if they were going to figure out the real reason for that. Another positive was that generally most the vast majority of agencies who participated in this survey said that they really do want to encourage more widespread use of ADR so there is this trend in the direction of you know they they want this to be an option for employees when possible and maybe it's just a matter of having the agencies have a better system to have that operate correctly yeah, so there's some mechanics there, and there's also the sense of goodwill and also the sense of having to avoid the appearance of a conflict of interest if somebody's judge and jury on the case that they sparked in the first place. I guess maybe the issue in the big departments is that there are other places to go where maybe you can get a more neutral hearing. I mean, I would think in a place like DHS, you could go to another component and someone could look at it objectively. I don't know whether that ever happens or not. So what does the EEOC recommend then to try to get this thing going again or more popular? They do want agencies to address some of these issues that were pretty broad that they saw in the surveys. So they said, for example, agencies should be holding briefings with senior leaders about both the successes and concerns within the ADA within the ADR program and develop some required annual training for both agency leaders as well as all employees so everyone kind of understands the process a little bit better. EEOC also gave some resources to try to help agencies do this better. So 
For one, they created a sample survey that agencies can give to employees who participated in the ADR process. And then, you know, just to get feedback from employees on what worked or didn't work with the ADR program. And then agencies could use those surveys to better understand where there might be some weak spots and update those policies when needed, those higher positions. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. Comprehensive work here. You can find all of her reporting at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in. And she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Looking Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Looking Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more. 
and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger 
towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort I, of the I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. That's you know? brilliant. <laughs> and um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about traveling, getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.